The reading for this sermon is from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So uh, we're now halfway through October, actually a little bit past halfway through, um, but this is my favorite month of the year because it's my favorite season. Uh, I love the changing leaves. I love the chilly breezes on your cheeks. I love wearing sweaters. I love lighting scented candles. And these, so these are all things I love about the month, right? But on top of all of those pleasant things, terrifying things also start to happen uh, with this month as the weather changes. So the days get shorter, plants start to die because it's so cold all of a sudden and you start to feel it in your bones and uh, seasonal affective disorder begins to uh, haunt about 25% of Americans and this is a scary time. And though all of those things start to happen, still we seek out terror to be our chief form of fall entertainment. Though when I want to be scared, instead of watching a movie or, I don't know, the news, I reach for the collected short stories of H.P. Lovecraft. He was a New England author of horror fiction between 1917 and 1936. You may recognize him as the creator of the Cthulhu mythos. His themes included forbidden knowledge, ancient languages, uh, inherited guilt, and the inability for mankind to understand the world and the universe. He even uh, earned his own genre of horror called Lovecraftian, though he would call it cosmic horror. Here's how he defines cosmic horror. All of my tales are based on the fundamental premise that common human law and interests and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large. The oldest, strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest, strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. This is the fear and awe we feel when confronted by phenomena beyond our comprehension.
Now, as I've studied the scriptures, I've come to know the Bible as a collection of many different genres, including prophecy, history, uh, adventure, sometimes comedy, but also horror. The primary type of horror found in the Bible is this cosmic horror, God, his angels, and where they reside being something beyond, beyond our comprehension or describability. Something we've feared and felt uncomfortable talking about for thousands of years. So an example would be wondering if the Nazis' heads exploding in Indiana Jones when they open the ark up, if that is a valid interpretation of Ezekiel chapter 22. Or, now that we're doing Divine Service 5, uh, Isaiah trying his best to describe the Lord on his throne with the eldritch-looking seraphim twitching around glorifying God being from Isaiah Mighty Seer in days of old. And, of course, who can forget John prophesying the end times. These are all just brief tidbits of the true cosmic horror that the Bible contains. And to the average person... If you were to describe the God of the Bible, Yahweh, you'd only get so far without them being horrified that God is a violent, terrifying, uninterested, supreme being sitting on a throne that has better things to do than be with or care about us ants here on earth. So we look to our story today. Handed down to us in Genesis, a true snapshot of the kind of horror found in the Torah alone. Let's look at the story in its whole sense, not just the one we read today. So in the beginning, God creates everything, and he does it out of nothing. And no one else can claim this, because he is God. And he doesn't only make happy, fluffy bunnies that you want to pet. He also creates all sorts of antediluvian horrors, such as the Leviathan and the behemoths lurking at the you know, deepest trenches of the Marianas Trench. And then he gives man and woman one rule that they can't break, but they can't help themselves. They can't just be the creatures that God intended for them to be. They're cast out. And not only are they cast out, they're actually cursed by the creator himself. And uh, then God sets a cherubim outside the garden, and the cherubim is this creature that is offensive to the understanding of man, and he is holding a flaming sword. From here on out, things start to happen to humanity. There's lots and lots of people. There's a race of horrendous-looking things that are very tall that breeded with the angels. The world's given over to sin. God wipes them out with a chaotic flood. Men, women, children screaming for a savior. Though God only spares one guy and his family. And then from then on, when he deals with humanity, it seems like he only does it with a few at a time. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He continues it with Isaac, whom Abraham almost sacrificed to God as a child. And then we get to Jacob, a terrible person. His brother Esau is supposed to be born first, but Jacob grabs him by the heel from the very beginning. And they name him Jacob, which has the Hebrew meaning to betray, to seize someone by the heel, to go behind someone, to hamper them, to hinder them. And later the prophets use it to describe unevenness, crookedness, bumpy terrain, deceitfulness, and slyness. 
But he doesn't stop there, Jacob. Next, Esau is tricked by Jacob into selling his birthright. And then Jacob steals his father's blessing. And afraid of Esau and his revenge, he flees. Here on out, Jacob, he's traveling, he gets wives, he tricks his uncle, he steals from his uncle, he runs away, and the entire time, God is saying to him directly with his own voice, you need to go back to your hometown and apologize to your brother. But Jacob is too afraid to make things right. He wants to keep on living in his sin. He even makes an elaborate plan to avoid confrontation, and then he has in his backup or in his pocket a backup military strategy in order to avoid him. But before he can go back and face his brother, first in the night, this guy shows up to wrestle him. And the guy he's wrestling with is really good. He might even be from God. The man then displays his control over creation by dislocating Jacob's hip. And Jacob realizes the stranger's power is not like any man he's wrestled before. And so he asks for a blessing. But instead, the man asks his name. Now Jacob has to own up to it. He has to confess his sin. He has to say his name. I am Jacob. I am crooked. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. I steal from my family members. I don't honor my mother and father. I took everything from my big brother, and I'm too afraid to go and talk to him now. I can't even look him in the eye. But what's it to you, stranger? There's a thousand other people like me out there, and I'm just a drop in the bucket. What makes me any different? And we talk about how God is this limitless, self-aware being that is simply existence itself. He doesn't, he isn't limited by our puny space-time continuum. He is the ultimate animating essence of life's whole existence, and he has no confines, and he outreaches fancy and mathematics alike, and he's been there for eternity, and he'll outlive death itself, and he'll throw death with his own two hands into hell forever, and he's existed before time itself uh, began, and will exist long after time is over, and he's literally the beginning of all things, and the end of all things, And he was there in the beginning when the forms were formless. And on top of this, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow forever. So why is he making a big deal of my tiny portion of the story? Says Jacob. Says us. There's much worse people out there, right? Well, the problem is, is that we Christians, we know this. We know we've sinned. We know that we are supposed to fear and love God, both when we uh, follow the commandments and break them. God has been with you and your family your whole life, and yet we continue to live and repeat our sin in our lives. And, you know, probably um, you guys were baptized the day after you were born. Uh, You knew all the answers in Sunday school, in fact, Uh, 
when Pastor Ross was teaching adult Bible school, uh, you guys were probably raising your hands and adding all sorts of comments. You went to private Lutheran school from preschool through the Concordia systems. Uh, You love your family. And God has always made sure you and your family are nice and healthy. But if they weren't, you were given the faith to make it through. But being a good Christian, you also know and you recognize that God did a lot of scary stuff. He sent his terror before the Hebrews at night. He destroyed two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, with nuclear explosions. In fact, he actually killed everyone in the world one time, except for a family. You say, I love my God, but I fear him too. And yeah, I'm disgusted with myself, how I live my life. I'm supposed to be a good role model. I'm a Sunday school teacher, for Pete's sake. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. How can I stand before God with how I'm living my life? I can't even, uh, <clears throat> I can't even uh, show my face to my own family member that I've crossed in the past. So this is where C.S. Lewis weighs in with another definition of cosmic horror. C.S. Lewis says, This is the terrible fix we're in. If the universe is not governed by absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is governed by an absolute goodness, then we're making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And our case is hopeless again. God is the only comfort but he's also the supreme terror. The thing we need the most and the thing we want to hide from the most. People talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. So let's go back to the text in this light. The man is wrestling with Jacob. What does he do when Jacob confesses everything he's done to him by telling him his name, confessing he's Jacob? He says, you are no longer to be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. He's saying, no longer are you a liar. No longer are you a thief. No longer do you hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, your neighbors. Now you're my chosen one. You are Israel. You are forgiven. But I am God. Never forget what I can do with people like you. And so he leaves and he does not fix the hip. A cold sweat runs down the neck of our protagonist, Jacob, now Israel. He says, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, terrifying, indescribable, pure goodness outside of time and space has shifted his almighty gaze directly into the eyes of a mortal man and forgives him. This is the terrifying grace of God. This is the unknown that Lovecraft talks about, that he calls the oldest fear of man, the enemy of our sinful nature, that God would forgive us. Right after this, Jacob looks up and he sees a reality in all of its entirety coming to see him. Esau is here and the army's with him. 
he instinctually tries to go the route of bowing before him. You know, you know please forgive me. But there's no way that this guy is going to forgive him, right, for everything he's done. Instead, Esau runs out to meet him. He gives him a hug and he kisses him. This is terrifying mercy. The man who should be desiring to kill Jacob for everything that he's done to him instead kisses him and wants to hear all about his adventures and his new family. Jacob is so taken aback by his brother's response that he tells him, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Now we know what that expression means, right? To see the face of God is to see terrifying mercy. To receive forgiveness from someone who should be disgusted by your very presence. We've discovered that the face of God seeks reconciliation between brothers, family, and neighbors. Even in this seemingly insignificant time period that we live in. In this insignificant place. God sent to us his only son, Jesus Christ. We're reminded by the Apostle John that no one has ever really seen God, the true God, until Jesus. Jesus, who is God, who was before all things, who's above all things and holds all things together, God made flesh dwelling amongst us. We see Jesus and we've seen God, the face of God. We see and experience the face of God in Jesus. Forgiveness, mercy, despite every which reason for not deserving it. Yeah, Jesus can be pretty terrifying to those who try and stop his work of forgiveness and mercy. But to repentant sinners, Jesus is instead their friend. And now, after his death and resurrection... To atone for your sins, he's sitting on a throne in heaven, the cosmic Christ, with his enemies, which are sin, death, the devil, under his feet as a footstool. When you confess your sin to Jesus and receive absolution, forgiveness, when you receive communion, God's very own body and blood, what words do Pastor and I give you afterwards? We say, the body and blood... Of our Lord, strengthen and preserve you steadfast in the true faith for the life everlasting. Go in peace. So here Jesus is changing the very being of who we are. We were angry, lying, swearing, cheaters, sinners. But cosmic Jesus, sitting in the highest honors that there could possibly be, is watching, hearing, and praying for all things that have, are, and will happen. He shifts his terrifying gaze of pure goodness onto our little service at 10.45 a.m. in St. Louis, Missouri. And he says to you, no longer are you sinners. You are forgiven. Here is strength, mercy, perseverance, and peace. My peace. Go home now. Apologize to the one who you've done wrong. I've given you the tools, put them into practice. This wonderful, terrifying act of forgiveness, which we fear is unknown from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We go past silly human concerns of worthiness and pride. And like Jacob, we throw ourselves at the feet of our brother and we allow for Jesus to bring reconciliation to that relationship. Because to creatures... Asking for forgiveness might seem like weakness. 
It might be terrifying. But to God, the all-knowing, omnipresent, omniscient ruler and creator of all things, it means salvation and peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen.